Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Robert Higgs, Senior Fellow in Political Economy, the Independent Institute, and editor of the Institute's quarterly journal, The Independent Review. Bob, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. Uh, glad to be here. Our topic for today is the Great Depression, and in particular, your unusual and provocative take on the events of the 1930s and the 1940s. I'd like to build our conversation around two papers you've written, both of which will be available on the website for this podcast so that listeners can read them in advance or afterward as you choose out there. Uh, These papers, by the way, are written in clear English, mostly devoid of jargon. Uh, They can be read with profit by non-economists, which is uh, an achievement on Bob's part. And the standard view of this period, or at least one standard view of uh, of the 1930s and 40s, is that the war, World War II, got us out of the Depression. Uh, You rejected that view in your 1992 paper in the Journal of Economic History entitled Wartime Prosperity, a Reassessment of the U.S. Economy in the 1940s. What was your argument in that paper? Well, the argument uh, takes several forms. Uh, it uh, starts with the standard view, which is that uh, the war ended the Depression because on the one hand, it uh, it brought the high rate of unemployment down uh, to extraordinarily low level by 1943-44, the lowest ever recorded. And uh, in addition, at the same time that uh, unemployment was coming down, uh, uh, real uh, gross domestic product was uh, shooting up at an extraordinary rate, and uh, a, a kind of uh, complement to the increase in real output was that uh, that consumer well-being actually increased, that real consumer spending rose during the war years, uh, even though uh, many resources were being diverted to uh, be used for strictly war purposes. So the, the, the standard account hinges, uh, for the most part, on, on those three facts, or what have been taken to be facts, uh, decline in unemployment, rise in real output, and rise in consumer well-being. And uh, what I did was to, as it were, squeeze the data that uh, purport to underlie each of those three claims and to show that that uh, those data just collapse. They don't support the uh, the claims at all. And uh, what has happened, I think, uh, is on the one hand, uh, people didn't think very hard about what happened during the war, first of all, uh, especially about the changes in the institutional setup uh, that the economy rested on during the war years. But, uh, but in a way, they... They, they they just didn't think very hard about uh, what it meant to be uh, unemployed, what it meant to produce real output, what it meant to enjoy consumer well-being. And uh, they simply went ahead using the same sorts of variables that economists 
normally used to think about those issues, uh, even though uh, the, the standard measures had lost almost all their substantive content as a result of the institutional changes associated with the war, wartime mobilization. So, so my challenge was uh, along several lines to, to take apart the standard interpretation of what happened during the war. Now, I just want to make an aside here that it's a wonderful example of uh, when you're asked to explain something, it's always a good idea to see if the something is true. Uh, and one of the things that's really nice about this paper is that you actually try to see if it is true. So why don't you walk through those um, those variables and talk about what we know and what we don't know? We've got well, we've got the, employment, and we've got the labor market, we have consumption, and we have output. Right. Uh, if we start in, in in 1940, which is where I started most of the analysis for this paper, uh, first of all, we see that the the depression was not over in 1940. Uh, the real GNP was about back to 1929 levels, but that, that doesn't mean that <laughs> the Depression was over because 10 years had passed, 11 years had passed since uh, 1929, so the economy's capacity to produce had grown greatly, and just to get back to the 1929 level of output did not mean that the Depression was over. But, but why, uh, why do you say the capacity had grown greatly in those 11 years? Well, uh, it had grown uh, for a number of reasons. The population had grown. Uh, uh, and lots of new technology had been developed during the 1930s, and much of it had not yet been uh, applied and would not be applied until after the end of the war. So the, uh, the, the growth of the total factor of productivity was quite rapid during the 1930s, and so the economy was in a position to be much more productive with the with the additional labor and as much capital as it had back in 1929, and, and, it, and it was not fulfilling that capability as of 1940. And one, one place we see that is in, in the still high rate of unemployment in 1940. Uh, if you take the standard uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics measure, the unemployment rate was 15.7% in 1940, which is an extraordinarily high rate of unemployment. Of course, it had been substantially higher than that uh, earlier in the decade, but uh, that, that's still very high unemployment. And, and even if you remove uh, the people who were, who were working but not counted as employed because they were working in uh, so-called emergency employment programs, things like WPA programs and the Civilian Conservation Corps and so forth. So they weren't in the private sector, but they were... In the expanded they had jobs, public sector, uh, what many people recognize to be make-work jobs for the most part. But uh, at the time, Stanley Liebergott, who who put these data together for the Labor Department, uh, argued that it was wrong to count these people as employed uh, because of the nature of their employment. Uh, and w whether that was correct or not, it, I think it depends on what you want to do with these data. So it's it's a good example though of how inherently ambiguous the concept of employed and unemployed is. It's unavoidable. You have to make some arbitrary decisions. So That's right. In the official BLS data that Libra got put together, they were called unemployed. They were not, they were called unemployed, which puts the rate at 15.7. Right. If you count them as employed, what do you get? Uh, 
if you count them as employed, you get the, the measure that Michael Darby uh, constructed about 30 years ago, and uh, that's uh, about 9.5%. So it's still very high. Still very high. So here, 11 years after the uh, onset of the Great Depression, we've got uh, very high unemployment, which means, again, that's one uh, way of seeing that the economy's not producing as much as it might have produced uh, had more of those people been uh, working productively. So, so that's where we start. And, and then what we see is uh, that the rate of unemployment begins to fall quickly, uh, for the next several years, and by the time we get we get to to 1943 or so, it's down in the neighborhood of one or two percent. And uh, in fact, uh, for the for the fiscal years, uh, I, I used a number of data put in government fiscal year terms. In those years, the fiscal year started at the middle of the year, in July 1st. Uh, so, so fiscal 1944, for example, started uh, July 1st, 1943. So, in fiscal 1944 and fiscal 1945, the measured unemployment rate was 1.3 percent, which is effectively zero. And anyone who's uh, familiar with the, the times knows that that uh, jobs were extremely easy to get. Anyone who wanted to work could get a job during the peak war years. Uh, we were making fact, a lot of airplanes and guns. And people, <laughs> people, employers were beating the bushes constantly to get uh, more em- employees and to keep the ones they had uh, as well. So, so uh, there's no question that unemployment disappeared effectively during the war. The question is, what what are we to make of that? Is uh, should we make of that what we normally make of a uh, drastic decline in unemployment, which is that it's an index of a uh, of a much better, more prosperous condition? Uh, and my answer is no. We can't uh, reach that conclusion in this case be, because if we look at uh, what happened to to people who were uh, in the total labor force. Uh, what we find is that that uh, starting in 1940, less than 2% of them were, were involved in defense employment. That is to say, either in the armed forces or in uh, civilian employment by the Navy and the Army uh, or in munitions production. In 1940, less than 2% of the total labor force was engaged in that way. But uh, by the time we get to, to 1943-45, the peak war years, uh, almost 40% of the total labor force is employed in defense employment. What happened is that we had a, a, an armed force in 1940 uh, of only uh, about half a million people. And by the, by the time we get into 1945, we've got an armed force uh, of more than 12 million uh, and uh, we've had to build up a, a similar number of people to support those 12 million uh, people in the armed forces. So, so there's a tremendous diversion of workers into defense-related employment, uh, and about half of that diversion being into the armed forces themselves. And uh, this, 
this, you know, might be viewed, and some economists have viewed it as, well, okay, that's just another sector of the economy. What's the problem? The problem is that, that this entire buildup hinged on the, the government's coercing people into the armed forces. So it was not the, the outcome or the upshot of individual choices in labor markets. More than 10 million men were drafted during the war, and uh, of those who joined, uh, many joined only because they didn't want to wait around and get drafted and, and probably end up in the infantry. So this entire buildup hinged uh, very largely on uh, the government's coercion of workers, and uh, that puts a completely different uh, spin on our understanding of, of what was happening. Uh, it's as if right now we looked around and we said, well, what do we have, uh, 10 million people unemployed. Uh, let's arrest them and move them in, into prisons. Uh, now, of course, we'd have to have a lot of people working to build all these new prisons to hold them and to guard them once they were there and to provide uh, subsistence for them and other things. So, uh, But anyhow, we'd get rid of unemployment. And we could have them while they were in the prisons. We could have them working. They could be making license plates or sure, license they, plate they holders. They could be occupied or... doing something. Uh, but if I made that proposal, people would think I was nuts. They'd think, well, that's a crazy way to get rid of unemployment. Uh, that, that's that's uh, fake. That's a phony stimulus program. <laughs> uh, or, or just that, digging a, you know, digging giant ditches um, and, and, and filling and, them back in. It's, it's... And people would be correct to have that reaction, but that's exactly the reaction they ought to have to the, what happened in the early 1940s, that the government simply gave millions of men a choice. You can, you can do as we say and go in the armed forces, or you can go to prison. And, of course, and, they also gave out a lot of checks to companies that were building bombs and airplanes and guns. Yes, they, of course they did that as well. And that uh, was, quote, voluntary, but it obviously well, is it not... Well, it, it, it was not entirely voluntary even there, Russ. I mean, it, it's more voluntary than what happened to the men who were drafted. But, uh, but it's, it's also the case that the government also coerced a number of uh, private producers. Uh, for example, the entire automobile industry, which was the biggest industry in the country at that time, was compelled to stop the production of its products of civilian vehicles and uh, switch all its uh, facilities over to producing uh, war goods, things like uh, tanks and aircraft. But the, so, bottom, the, bottom line, I, I, the bottom line is that if you think of that 40% involved in those industries, either as producers or as soldiers, you've got only 60% available to do, quote, the rest of the, the rest of the economy. That's right. And obviously, they're not going to be able to produce as much stuff as the 90%. They shouldn't be able to. It would be shocking uh, if the would, private sector economy would be thriving in that situation. And yet... Uh, it, it would be shocking, moreover, because... The people you've removed from the labor force are especially productive people. They're males between 18 and 40. Uh, and, and almost all of them, except those that were right out of school, uh, ha had been working already. They had labor market experience. Their replacements, however, were overwhelmingly uh, teenagers, elderly people who uh, often retired 
uh, from the labor force and then came back during the war. Uh, and, and women who had little or no experience in the paid labor force before the war. So these are relatively unproductive people compared to those that are drawn out into the armed forces. And, and that, of course, also makes it even more astonishing that, that you would not only be able to maintain civilian output, but, but purportedly increase it. Uh, it's it's actually a preposterous story, Russ, and it's it's amazing that people have believed it. Well, it's fascinating as to why they have. I think part of it is uh, a um, a Keynesian mindset that somehow spending has this big multiplier. So when the government buys all this military hardware and employs all these soldiers, the money is like racing through the economy multiple times. And um, I think the right attitude. For fundamental economics, the way I always think about it is think about the quantities, and you got fewer workers, not just a few fewer, a lot fewer. And as you point out, uh, I mean, there are different ways to interpret it. I'm going to take the agnostic interpretation, which is simply war is not productive. It's destructive. Uh, You can argue whether, when, and if it's necessary, but you certainly don't want to argue it enhances the human enterprise. So when you shrink the available resources to the consumer side, you'd expect the consumer side to get smaller, a lot smaller. And that's what you find. That, that is what I find. Now, you know, there are some reasons that are not uh, really Keynesian-type reasons why the economy was able for a short period to produce more than one might have suspected. Uh, for one thing, the existing resources were used more intensively during the war. The uh, work week in manufacturing, for example, and that's where practically all the measured growth took place during the war was in manufacturing. Uh, the work week in manufacturing increased from an average of 38 hours per week to 45 hours per week. Uh, the capital stock was used much more intensively. Uh, many plants were used a double shift or even triple shift, whereas before they had been used in a single shift uh, per day and sometimes not even always a single shift uh, because of the lingering depression conditions. But, uh, but the capital stock was used much more intensively. And by the way, this is another very underappreciated aspect of the war and one I hope to study uh, more rigorously in the future uh, is that the war involved a tremendous amount of unmeasured capital consumption. There's been some effort going back to a classic article by by Robert Gordon in 1969 to show that 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 capital accumulation was actually benefited by wartime activities because the government built a lot of new uh, plants uh, on its own account, and for a while those didn't get noticed uh, when economists did their uh, productivity measures and thought about uh, what was happening in the macroeconomy. But, uh, but it turns out that uh, the, the government's contribution to building up the capital stock was overwhelmingly building up uh, capital that had little or no application other than strictly military application. And that's another chapter in my book that uh, we probably won't talk about today, but it's an important one. And and in, in addition to that issue is this this uh, a very rapid use of the capital stock, which of course increased the depreciation of that stock more than measured b- 
because the uh, the government accountants at the Commerce Department just apply a formula. It's like a sinking fund formula when they decide how much depreciation to charge against the existing capital stock every year in the national accounts. And uh, that formula is inappropriate during the war years because the capital stock was being used up much quicker then. And that, and as I say, is one reason why the economy was able to pr- produce quite a lot, even though it had to uh, resort to using uh, less productive labor inputs uh, when, when the military absorbed so many prime workers. The, but the, Bob, the book you're referring to, I assume, is Depression, War, and Cold War. Yes, it and is. And we'll put a link up to that. Uh, the book came out. It's a collection of Bob's essays. It includes the two we're focusing on, but it came out in 2006. Yeah, one thing I might mention, Russ, uh, uh, the two articles we're talking about now uh, go back to 1992 and 1997. But when I gathered a number of related articles for this book, Depression, War, and Cold War, I actually went through everything and made some revisions. Okay. And uh, so even though they're not, uh, I don't think in any case, earth-shaking revisions, uh, I would prefer that people read these things in my book. Absolutely. uh, Rather than the original articles, because they do. The the book does incorporate some changes in at least little points of emphasis and uh, sources and what have you. Let me go back. That's great, but let's go back to the to the story, which is uh, let's move to the last variable, um, the last two. It it seems that then one of the reasons I think people were have been misled about what the forties were really like, the first half during the war, is that well output was growing and therefore we had a bigger economy and therefore prosperity had returned. And yet you show that that was not the case. What mistake are people making in interpreting well, the data? they're making a, a mistake uh, uh, of several kinds. One is uh, related to how we measure output. And this, this is, I think, been my most difficult point to get across to my fellow economists. Uh, most economists, uh, when they do macroeconomics, think output, oh, yes, that's GDP. And then they just plug in these numbers from the Commerce Department. They don't give a lot of thought to how this number is generated. They just say that's total output, and and they know that somehow it it's the it's the sum of all currently produced goods and services in a year's time valued at market prices. It's a big but, pile of stuff, but yeah. you got to add stuff together to convert uh, it to dollars. But what they don't appreciate, uh, what <laughs> very few of them could explain, is how the Commerce Department puts that big thing together. Uh, the, the kinds of assumptions, uh, arbitrary projections, extensions, interpolations. Uh, it's, uh, when you start looking at what goes into the production of a, a GDP estimate, <laughs> it's very unsettling, frankly, to discover how, how sausages are really made. Uh, but you take comfort in general from the idea that, well, these same assumptions are made year in, year out. Yes, but you do. But and in the World War II... And that's where the problem arises, yeah. because uh, uh, whatever a GDP me- means uh, in normal times, uh, a year like 1939 or even 1940, it did not mean that during the war years, because uh, the market pricing system 
which uh, in, in 1940 would have been available to price about 90% of the goods and services that went into GDP, uh, was only being used to, to, to price about half of the goods and services that went into GDP in, in 1944. And, and what had happened is that because the government itself was purchasing so much of the total product, almost half of it, uh, the prices the government paid were being used. Well, you might say, well, that's just another kind of market price, but it isn't. And that's my point. The prices that the government chose to pay for these goods and services it purchased were essentially arbitrary. They did not uh, emerge from the interplay of private producers and private consumers making bids and offers. Uh, they arose from the fact that the government commanded a huge volume of resources uh, uh, through taxation, through borrowing, which means deferred taxation, or through simply taking them. Uh, the government confiscated a lot of property outright uh, by condemnation proceedings during the war, or it, or it de facto took resources, even though they remained with their private owners, Formally, the government told these people what they had to do and how they had to do it. So there was a huge government takeover of resources, and even though they leave a paper trail that looks like market transactions, these market transactions do not have any sound basis in economic science. They don't grow out of what we think of as equalizing at the margin and so forth. Uh, they're just the result of government buyers sitting down with contractors and arguing back and forth until they they get to a price. But uh, you also make the point, at least this was, I, I thought, equally important, that private sector goods prices were also not meaningful. Well, that's also right. Uh, because they often weren't available at the, uh, at the so-called price. They either were not available or they were, they were being transacted in... in in markets that were in disequilibrium because of price controls. During the war, the government put into effect a comprehensive system of, of, of price, wage, and rent controls. Uh, virtually everything was in some way subject to these controls. And what that means is that, you know, just as I mentioned earlier, there was persistent excess demand for labor uh, that wasn't equilibrated in the market because uh, producers were not permitted to bid up wages because of wage controls in many of these markets for civilian goods with price controls there were persistent excess demands and those demands were rationed through non-price means they were not rationed the way they are in a normal competitive economy uh, and and as a result the prices that did exist and were paid uh, people did buy and sell things during the war to be sure they do not in any way reflect a kind of equivalence of the consumer's marginal valuation and the producer's marginal rates of, of transforming one good into another. So, so the, the moorings of the system by which we say, here's why it's justified to compute GDP by taking market prices and multiplying each good by its market price, uh, the, the logic that that whole system rests on dissolved during the war. 
And as a result, almost all prices during the war are more or less arbitrary. They don't mean anything any longer. Well, there could... I think we want to make a distinction between the prices that are measured in a government price index um, or government database and the actual prices. So, you know, if you wanted to get chocolate in the war or or, um, tires or silk stockings, uh, there was a price, but it wasn't the price in the official government series. So if you multiply the price times the output, you're not getting a meaningful number. Well, what what happened uh, to to make the GDP seem to grow so much is that all of this government purchasing was thrown into the pile. And this was arbitrarily priced output. When the government bought uh, a few hundred B-29 bombers and multiplied uh, the number of units by the unit price it paid Boeing for the airplanes, that was simply an arbitrary number. Uh, and you, you take that kind of calculation, multiply it by about uh, 500,000 uh, for the different kinds of goods and services the government was purchasing for war purposes, and you throw that into GDP, and what you get is, is nothing. You get a meaningless number. And uh, I, I have been trying for 20 years or more to persuade my fellow economists that it's a meaningless number, and they just can't stand the, the idea. So they, well, our, our statistical packages don't have a uh, an algorithm for <laughs> running regressions when n you know variable x is quote meaningless. Right. We, need, my, we just need a special package and add you know some kind of subroutine or. What my fellow economists generally think I'm saying is that the price indexes were subject to mismeasurement, and that's true. They were. But the but the price indexes <laughs> and the mis- mismeasurement is actually a relatively minor issue here. A a more important issue is the whole concept of how we measure national product. Uh, there was a time when economists worried about this this issue. Simon Kuznets, who more than anyone else is the is the father of national income and product accounting in this country, uh, worried for years and years and years about this and wrote about it, agonized about it, and Kuznets commented uh, all through the 1940s and into the 1950s how the, uh, the valuation of war, war outputs was almost impossible. He tried his best, but at the end of all <laughs> Kuznets' calculations, he would usually confess, well, I don't have much confidence in this. And uh, ultimately what happened, I'm, I'm sorry to say, is that uh, Simon Kuznets, who more or less did millions of arithmetic calculations himself, uh, was overwhelmed by the resources of the Commerce Department. And starting during the war, the Commerce Department took over doing national accounts. It has been done by individuals mostly associated with the National Bureau of Economic Research earlier. And, and the Commerce Department took it over as an as an aspect of its war planning. And what what happened after the war was in, instead of the Commerce Department leaving the field and letting it revert to Kuznets and, and, and people like that, uh, the Commerce Department continued to generate national income and product accounts and to do it the Commerce Department's way. And their way was to just forget this issue, sweep it under the rug, pretend that whenever the government bought any final good or service, it 
price it paid was what you used uh, to value that good, and you didn't worry about how that price was arrived at and whether it had anything to do with markets. And that's been the case ever since, Russ. So, so this government ass element of GDP has been a, a, a kind of a skeleton in the closet of macroeconomics ever since World War II, and it's one that very few economists pay attention to if, the, if they're aware of it at all. So let's but, but so let's this go. is a major source of why we think there was a wartime boom during World War II, uh, and, and uh, this argument is unsustainable on scientific grounds. So what's the bottom line on consumption during the war and our standard of living? Well, on consumption, uh, what you can try to do is go back and re- rework the price indexes. And what I did in, in my work is to rely on a number of people's uh, re-estimates of what happened to consumer prices. As you mentioned a while ago, there, there were real prices. They just weren't the ones that were the controlled prices. Uh, and, and people like Hugh Rockoff and, and, and uh, Milton Friedman, Anna Schwartz, and others have tried to re-estimate what the actual prices were uh, as against the control prices. Uh, and if you use these estimates, uh, what you find is that real consumer outlays fell from 1941 to 1943, came back a little bit, but didn't get back to their 1941 level until 1946. In other words, consumers were worse off just on this simple basis during the war. Uh, But this is not at all the whole story of why they were worse off, because it wasn't just that that, uh, their real, real consumption spending was lower. It was that so many other things happened that aren't captured even by these re-estimated price indexes. Uh, consumer price uh, prices didn't reflect adequately the deterioration of quality of goods during the war. That's another way that producers react to price controls. Uh, they effectively sell you less at the controlled price uh, by selling you a lower quality good. And many, many goods during World War II deteriorated in quality. Probably the most important one was housing services. Because with rent controls on, landlords found that the only way they could even hope to, to, to get a decent return on their investment was by cutting back on maintenance uh, expenses. And they did that. Some, some of them didn't do any maintenance at all. Uh, so, so housing deteriorated, clothing deteriorated, shoes deteriorated, uh, uh, all kinds of goods uh, deteriorated during the war, and, and that would have to be taken into account as well. And, and it's not taken into account by any of the people who've re-estimated the price indexes. Uh, That's a great uh, point. That's, in I, in I addition, there are a number of transaction costs that had to be borne by consumers during the war that weren't borne before or after the war. For example, standing in line to purchase a lot of price-controlled goods. Spending time arranging trades, uh, which were illegal, by the way, of ration coupons. Uh, Looking around for where goods were available, uh, which a lot of people had to do since there was excess demand. It was hard to find goods in the marketplace very often. So so all of these things also worsened the well-being of consumers, as, as well as simple takeovers of things like transportation, 
services, which the government just preempted. If it wanted to move uh, a, a, a battalion of troops, it simply put them on the train, and the train wasn't any, any longer available for passengers. And in those days, the trains were still important way of moving people from uh, place to place. So, so there were just many, many other ways in which consumer well-being deteriorated during the war that are not captured by the standard uh, variables. It seems a little bit absurd and surreal that you have to spend so much time convincing people that devoting, say, 40% of the economy to warfare is not good for the domestic economy. And, uh, and yet, that idea dies very hard. I think there are a lot of people who continue to believe it. So it's always good to remind folks of just why that's not likely to be the case on logical grounds. But empirically, if you look more carefully, it's the same story. Let's move on to your second paper and move back in time now to the 30s. So the there's you call it the great duration, which is the fact that we have the great contraction, uh, which is the original 1929 to 1932 period, which is the real downturn in the economy. And it persists uh, much longer than past uh, periods of downturn, although I, I doubt we have very good data. We talked a little bit about this in an earlier podcast. I'd like to know what happened in the 1894 depression, which was another very bad downturn. But a lot of people, of course, argue that the New Deal uh, pulled us out of the depression. Uh, you argue it didn't. And despite this long series of efforts by Washington to get the economy going between 33 and 41, uh, as you pointed out earlier in our this conversation, it doesn't seem to have recovered. So it's a bit of a puzzle. Uh, did the Great Depression uh, hang on because it started out so deeply, or did it hang on because policies intending to re lead to recovery actually made things worse? And where do you come down on that in this um, in this paper? Well, my, my paper was uh, intended as a, a kind of complement. Uh, it wasn't intended uh, to displace every other explanation for why the Depression dragged on so long in the United States. By the way, it, it, it didn't drag on so long in, in most other industrial countries, uh, which is one of the the things that we need to explain. I, but, I should I should mention the title of the paper. It's Regime Uncertainty, Why the Great Depression Lasted So Long and Why Prosperity Resumed After the War. And it was originally published in 1997 in the Independent Review. And as you say, it's been revised in the new book. Uh, yes. The, the, the paper was designed to, to uh, alert, as it were, uh, economists and others to, to the fact that that the Roosevelt administration from at least 1935 on uh, behaved in such a way that it created a, a, an atmosphere of, of extreme uncertainty and apprehension among investors. And uh, the, the upshot was that uh, a long-term investment particularly ne never recovered. Uh, to the level of the late 1920s. And uh, here I'm, I'm emphasizing it wasn't just that uh, 
the trick was getting back to 1929, people might think, well, that that was uh, somehow overdoing it anyhow. Uh, but if you take the second half of the 1920s as a whole and look at the the typical investment, for example, uh, about 16% of, of GDP went into private investment in the late 1920s. The economy didn't didn't get back to to that rate of investment until after World War II. Uh, so why did it take so long? Why why was it that that unlike all previous experience we had in this country, including that depression of the 1890s, uh, which lasted only about five years at most, uh, we have one that's that's running uh, well over a decade. Uh, uh, why did we have this great duration? And and what I did was to, to point out that uh, this was an extraordinary time in the late 1930s when we might ha- otherwise have expected to see the economy fully recover. A lot of uh, really uh, amazing things were happening in this country. And, and if you're a macroeconomist and don't know any history, you just have a string of numbers to work with, you're totally oblivious to this. You think, oh, well, it's just another five-year period. Uh, but it was anything but just another five-year period. Uh, what happened was that uh, around 1935, again, we're, we're, we might push this back a little, uh, probably shouldn't extend it much more, though it's certainly by 1935, uh, Roosevelt uh, had uh, more or less changed his closest advisors, he had taken on people who were much more hostile to to private property and uh, business enterprise, uh, and he had in part done this and had himself changed his uh, his tack politically because of challenges from a number of uh, extreme populistic or leftist uh, figures, uh, uh, people people like Upton Sinclair and uh, Huey Long, uh, Father Coughlin, uh, uh, just a number of these people that had kooky schemes during the Depression uh, for having the government redistribute wealth in a massive fashion or or, or put everybody on a dole. Uh, uh, Dr. Townsend had a system for giving every old person $200 a month on the condition that it all be spent before the end of the month. Uh, you know, like expiring money. <laughs> uh, any, anyhow, there were all these crazy ideas going around uh, during the mid-1930s, and Roosevelt was was afraid of the political challenge these people uh, presented to him. And, and, of course, he was looking all during his first term toward re-election in 1936. So what he basically did was uh, was go them one better. He said, "Okay, you, you want radicalism? I'll give you radicalism." And he he, he turned to measures that were that were uh, menacing uh, to investors and business people to a high degree. And uh, we, we got things like the the Wagner Act in 1935 and the Social Security Act. 1935, the Public Utility Holding Act, 1935, uh, and and very important, uh, I want to add, the the Banking Act of 1935. And and that comes into play because uh, many economists uh, like to argue, in fact, I'd say this is now the reigning interpretation among mainstream uh, economists, that 
that, well, after Roosevelt took office, the economy was fine. It, it recovered. Just look at how every year we get a little, little better off and a little better off. And, and you say, but, but wait, uh, how, why is it that, that in 1940 we're, we're still not out of the Depression? And then they say, well, that was just because we had this, this, uh, this problem in 1937 of the, the Depression of 37-38. But you can't blame that on the New Deal. They say that was caused by bad Fed policy when it doubled the reserve requirements uh, in a relatively short period of time. And, and of course, that had the, the macro effects that many people nowadays would expect it to have and caused this uh, very sharp uh, depression in 1938. Uh, but uh, it's important to realize that, that we can't divorce that Fed action in 1936-37 uh, from the Banking Act of 1935, which was one of the jewels of the New Deal. It was that Banking Act that gave the Federal Reserve the power to change reserve requirements. So they gave the Fed the power. The Fed used the power. You know, it seems this, this needs to be chalked up as a mark against the New Deal. It can't be treated as just one of these exogenous things. Oh, that was just something bad, bad, bad exogenous policymaking by, by Fed officials uh, because they can only do what they're authorized to do by, by the legislation Congress passes. So the challenge you face in the paper, obviously there's a much longer list of, of policy um, U-turns, accelerations, um, changing ways that wages and prices were set, all kinds of uncertainty about economic life in the 30s as Roosevelt and his advisors and Congress tried to get the economy going rather than leaving it alone, which may have turned out better, but that's not what they did. So the challenge, I think, is for you to make the case, which you do in the paper or try to, uh, that that your story is more than an ex post narrative. It, you know, it's it's easy to say after the fact. Well, there were a lot of policy changes, and people were obviously off, put off by these, which I'm sure they were. Many people were. Uh, but the alternative view is simply that, well, you know, it, it was really deep the de- the depression and investment, as you point out. Uh, private net investment was negative in almost every year in the 1930s, uh, and. Maybe that just it just took a while. But your your story is just it's just an ex post rationalization for disliking Roosevelt. Yes, but, but you have other evidence. So tell us what that is. Well, uh, actually, I have three different forms of evidence, uh, and and I think that's one of the strengths of this thesis that doesn't just rely on running a regression and getting a certain coefficient. Uh, it, it relies on essentially independent forms of evidence that all point in the same direction. One is just a mass of historical fact uh, uh, recounting what businessmen and others, up to and including the Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, were saying to the effect that in the late 30s, businessmen were scared. They were afraid that Roosevelt might be making himself a dictator and that the United States might be uh, becoming something like Mussolini's Italy or Hitler's Germany. Uh, when you when you say this to many people, they they just laugh, they laugh it off sure. right away. They say this is preposterous. Right. But you cannot laugh this off if you've looked at the evidence. <laughs> so, so give it to us. And and if you go to uh, a, a book called Pride, Prejudice, and Politics by Gary Dean Best. 
uh, who's a historian. This book was published uh, in the early 90s, uh, and I'm sorry to say that when I wrote my article, I hadn't read it yet, so I didn't realize what a gold mine it is. But Beth's book is several hundred pages of basically just one piece of evidence after another in which people are saying, we're not going to invest now. Who knows what these crazy guys in the government are going to do to us next? So, you know, to say that this story is ex post rationalization is possible only if you're willing to close your eyes to a, a, a gigantic mass of contrary testimony. Well, that testimony, though, could be um, just um, what people wanted to say because they wanted to get people scared about Roosevelt, right? Well, it could be if it were public or if it were public, uh, if, if it were all kind of uh, publicity type information, but that's the point. It isn't. Much of it is privately expressed uh, uh, outlooks, and uh, so it's not really subject to uh, being dismissed on the grounds that it's just the the plutocrats that complain. What would you expect plutocrats to do? It comes from many, many different sources and uh, of private as well as public uh, statements. So it, it is a tremendously impressive to me a uh, body of evidence I, I i had seen a lot of this evidence myself over the years uh, not just from Beth, but from other people uh, and from my own reading of sources in the 1930s but i had no idea until i read uh, Beth's book uh, how pervasive this kind of view was in the business community at the time so that's one kind of evidence uh, another kind of evidence I got from uh, public opinion surveys, uh, which in the later 1930s were just getting started, and uh, Fortune in particular had a survey in those days of business people, uh, and, and on many occasions it asked uh, questions that are relevant to my thesis here about regime uncertainty. And what I do in the, uh, in the chapter and now in the book is to, to lay out some of uh, these uh, Poll data and show uh, just uh, how large were the proportions of business people who who expected a very great harm to private property rights to come from the government in in the future. I was rather struck by the one uh, that uh, the one you give the um, uh, what year is it from uh, November nineteen forty one. I'll actually read the. Um, the quotes, uh, the uh, actual choices that uh, that you give here. This is um, from the Fortune poll, and it's a business executives. I uh, I don't know how many people are actually polled, but here's the, here are the choices. Here's the question: Which of the following comes closest to being your prediction of the kind of economic structure with which this country will emerge after the war? Here are the four options, and the percentages agreeing with each option. One. A system of free enterprise restored very much along the pre-war lines with modifications to take care of conditions then current, 7%. An economic system, number two, an economic system in which government will take over many public services formerly under private management but still leave many opportunities for private enterprise, 52%. A semi, choice three, a semi-socialized society in which there will be very little room for the profit system to operate. 37%. And finally, a complete economic dictatorship along fascist or communist lines, a little under 4%. So 40% believed 
that we were on the way to a radical remaking of the American economy, if they were being honest. And I don't know who was polled. I don't know if you know, remember from that poll who was being polled of, among executives, how many or what the... Uh, my recollection is that they were, they were polling in the neighborhood of 1,000. You know, those polls got standardized fairly early in that na- neighborhood for sampling error reasons. Uh, so it's, it's in the neighborhood of 1,000 respondents. Uh, and I think that is extraordinary testimony, Russ, uh, because these are very stark uh, prospects that the, the question posed. And to have 40% of businessmen expect that the government is, is virtually going to take over the economy. Uh, it would discourage you from taking a, a chance <laughs> on the future. I, so I certainly accept that argument. Uh, and uh, in, uh, in another paper uh, that's also in my book, uh, I produced some of the um, poll data related to businessmen who, who were, were not prepared to accept government munitions contracts when the government began its buildup in, in 1940, 41. And uh, there the question asked their reasons. And, uh, and <laughs> it's uh, very interesting that uh, a preponderance of these people basically said, you, you can't trust the government. Uh, I wouldn't do business with them, even if, you know, even if I thought I could make money producing some kind of uh, military output. I, I won't take a contract. And uh, for a while, in 1940 and, and, and 41, there was a, a big problem that the government had money allocated by Congress to, to, to build up munitions facilities, and it couldn't get any takers to, to take the contracts. Uh, and uh, at the time, uh, I.F. Stone, who was a journalist, uh, was writing about what he called a strike of capital. Uh, <laughs> but what it was is that the businessmen simply didn't trust the Roosevelt administration, didn't, didn't think uh, they were people that uh, businessmen could reliably do, do business with, and, and therefore it's better to, to not get involved, uh, which is an amazing thing. Now, that, that changed quite quickly after Roosevelt began to bring thousands of businessmen into the government to run the, uh, the buildup, and, uh, and eventually businessmen were, were happy to, to take war contracts and, and did very well by doing so. But, uh, but early on, what we're seeing is a reflection of that extreme distrust between business people and the Roosevelt administration that had developed from the mid-1930s onward. Uh, I'm going to make a confession here. You know, I've always been sympathetic to your argument uh, because of my own uh, outlook on the world. And um, interesting question. It comes up now and then in, in among comments this podcast about biases. Well, of course, we all have biases. We all have worldviews. We all have ideology. We all have methodology, ways we were trained, ways we look at the world. And my way of looking at the world is sympathetic to your story. But I've always wondered, you know, whether I was just confirming my own biases. Um, But in today's world, in 2008, I I feel a little bit of that regime uncertainty as um, the Treasury Department and the Fed are jerking the economy around, trying to desperately flying by the seat of their pants to find something that they think will stick and that'll work. And uh, I've become, I have to confess, a little more 
sympathetic to your a lot more sympathetic to your argument. Um, I do think it's a, it's a fascinating argument, but but most people are not sympathetic to it. Correct? It has not been widely accepted among no, economists. It, it, it's not widely accepted, uh, uh, partly because people haven't looked at my evidence. It's it's interesting that when uh, a a, uh, <laughs> a blog, for example, uh, this, this was discussed on a number of blogs in the past year or so, including uh, uh, Tyler's blog. Yep. Uh, uh, and many of the people who talk about uh, my idea uh, do it without having read my work. Well, that makes it easier, you know. And uh, I, I realize this is the standard way for people <laughs> to talk on blogs. Sure. But, uh, but they dismiss it out of hand as if it uh, it, it can't possibly have been the case. Uh, and again, I I think uh, it, it it's just important that people know something about this period. Uh, it wasn't just a period like now, or or, or like, perhaps I should say, like uh, the world was until fairly recently, because I agree with you, we're seeing some of this right now as well, regime uncertainty because of the government's uh, very rapid, uh, unpredictable changes in policy course uh, involving huge amounts of money. Uh, and not just money, the rules of the game. That's right. What's rules, your... rules as well. Uh, who can do what? Uh, with what, and uh, and particularly, I think uh, right now, uh, as during the New Deal, the government's uh, volatility in policy making is uh, is uh, a plain heck with any calculation of risk return, uh, because uh, you know how how one is supposed to formulate an idea of the of the likely risk connected with. Any kind of investment right now escapes me, and I think it's escaping a lot of, uh, of bankers and potential investors, too, because they just don't know what to expect, uh, and particularly they don't know what to expect about who's going to be bailed out. Yeah, how, and how hard you should work to try to bail yourself out. That's right. How, whether uh, you should try to acquire a struggling firm when that struggling firm might find itself finding a sweeter bid from the government. Right. Yeah. Well, we've we've all seen, for example, that that uh, many of these so-called toxic assets, which are being held by financial institutions right now, uh, are said to be unsaleable. But you don't need to think about this very long to realize the reason they're unsaleable is why would anyone want to sell them at a, at a low price when the government may very well take them off your hands at a high price? Correct. So it, it makes no sense for anybody to go out and create the markets. Uh, and I refuse to believe that you can't create markets for these assets. It's not as if every one of them is worthless. <laughs> but I think the key point is this natural uh, repair that could take place is just it's holding been, off right it's now. It's been cut off by the uncertainty about what government will do. I, uh, I want to give you another piece of evidence. Uh, it's not good evidence, Bob, but it's rare that I have a chance to read uh, from P.G. Woodhouse on EconTalk. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to take the liberty of doing so. Uh, in 1946, he wrote a book called Joy in the Morning. It's, a, it's an extremely entertaining book. It's since been reprinted in the, with the title Jeeves in the Morning. And uh, there's an American businessman who plays a very small role in the book. His name is... Ch Chichester Clam, and a British businessman wants to meet with him, but he uh, decides that, that Mr. Clam is extremely nervous for some reason. He can't figure it out. He decides finally to attribute it, his neurotic tendencies to two sources. 
One is coffee, which is a very British um, uh, attack on an American businessman. Uh, he says he drinks too much coffee. And the second is the New Deal. And here's what the character in the Woodhouse's book writes. This, uh, again, was written in 1946, uh, set in the uh, 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 pre-war New Deal era. He says, over in America, it appears, life for the businessman is one long series of large cups of coffee punctuated with shocks from the New Deal. He drinks a quart of coffee and gets a nasty surprise from the New Deal. To pull himself together, he drinks another quart of coffee, and along comes another nasty surprise from the New Deal. He staggers off, calling feebly for more coffee, and, well, you see what I mean, vicious circle. No nervous system could stand it. Chichester Clam's nerves are in ruins. He wants to take the next boat to New York. So uh, I think it's not really very compelling, but I, I did find it interesting that in that a British uh, comic writer in 1946 saw a little bit of regime uncertainty in uh, in the 30s in America. Well, if you if you're going to believe Woodhouse or me, I recommend Woodhouse. Uh, <laughs> uh, whether he's right or not, you'll get a lot more enjoyment out of it. Well, we're we're almost uh, out of time. I'd like to hear from you as when we as we close. Uh, what you think are additional questions that economists could profitably study uh, from the this period we're talking about, the contraction, the duration, and the escape, uh, the last term being the one you apply to when the economy starts to recover, right. the great escape. Um, what One thing I notice, and we will be talking about this with other historians, I hope, in future podcasts, but one thing I notice is that this is the seminal economic event of the 20th century we're talking about. I hope we're not living in the seminal economic event of the 21st century, but we very well may be. And there's only one of them in the 20th century. So the ability of people to do really misleading and lousy empirical work and storytelling to explain one event is really pretty unlimited. Um, we've learned something about this era, um, but it's it's striking – to a non-specialist, how little we've learned. There isn't a consensus on these issues. Uh, even in the mainstream, you and I are a little bit outside the mainstream on this, but even among mainstream economists, macroeconomists, there's lots of arguments still about this one event. Uh, do you see any prospect for narrowing the range of ignorance uh, of this kind of phenomenon when there's so much complexity in, the, in, in any modern economy? I, I do see potential, and if I hadn't seen some, I wouldn't have written any of these papers. But uh, but one of the things I, I continue to uh, advance as a as a mark in favor of my my interpretation is that uh, as, as the title of that regime uncertainty paper suggests, it's not just uh, an explanation of the great duration; it's also an explanation of why prosperity uh, returned, genuine prosperity returned when the war ended. Now, one of the great difficulties and unrecognized difficulties of standard explanations of why the Depression lasted or why it didn't last, because many people think it was over by 1941, owing to monetary uh, events, increases in the money stock. Uh, one of the problems with that is uh, that 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 way of looking at the the economy's development falls flat on its face at the end of World War II. Uh, it, all of these ways, these models that fit 
uh, people claim, uh, people like Christine Romer claim, explained the late 1930s, utterly failed to explain what happened uh, in 1945 to 48. Uh, they're, they're all variants of some kind of uh, quasi-Keynesian with monetarist uh, uh, models, and those models all fail utterly to explain the transition uh, from 1945 to 47. And the view I've advanced actually was advanced as part of a, an explanation of the entire period from the mid-1930s to the late 1940s. So it's a, a view that explains the Great Duration, the phony prosperity of World War II, and the successful transition to a genuinely prosperous economy after the war ended. And uh, I would say if, if people were willing to face up to that challenge, we could have some really interesting work. All right? Now I think economists are in a rut. Uh, they're just estimating the same kinds of models. They're talking about only the 1930s experience, forgetting uh, what happened during the war or misunderstanding what happened during the war and disregarding the fact that none of these models is worth a damn to explain what happened in 1946-47. So I think there's a lot of potential for more work. As I say, I hope to do some more myself. Uh, but uh, if I don't, I hope some of the younger people will take up these challenges. Your claim about the Great Escape uh, in post-war is that the, the rules settled down and, and the private sector was allowed to thrive, correct? That's right. That's in a nutshell that the, the great threat that had arisen during the Second New Deal in the, in the second half of the 1930s had disappeared during the war because uh, the administration had to bring in all these businessmen to run the war economy, and at the same time, it shoved out these zealous New Dealers, either completely out of the government or onto the peripheries of what was important. And uh, after five years of having the economy run that way, businessmen no longer distrusted the government so much as it had before. But also, uh, at the end of the war, uh, with Truman as president, uh, a, a great many of these wartime uh, rules and regulations and government takeovers were abandoned fairly quickly, uh, and uh, and that also helped to to uh, lead business people to think that well we we can we can manage in this new situation. It's safe again to make a long term investment. My guest today has been Robert Higgs, Senior Fellow in Political Economy for the Independent Institute. Bob, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.